You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. How you doing? I'm okay. Welcome back, Leslie. Are you feeling uh, revitalized, rejuvenated, and, and full of newfound glee? Yes, definitely filled with lava flows and pineapple. So, uh, yeah. No complaints. Thank you for uh, the extra week, uh, and, and thank you to our listeners for your patience. Hopefully you enjoyed last week's supersized episode and our great interview with the showrunner from The Bear, which is a truly excellent hidden gem this summer. Uh, we got a big episode this week, catching up on some holiday headlines. Uh, no showrunner guest this week, as we had a last-minute cancellation, but uh, we will have a great episode for you with a fabulous guest next week. Let's go. Leading off, let's get into headlines. Number one. Paramount Plus has renewed Evil for a fourth season, and FX has picked up Jeff Bridges' star, The Old Man, for a second season. Apple has announced that its Jason Momoa drama series, C, which launched the service along with The Morning Show and For All Mankind, will end with its upcoming third season and will produce many people on Twitter saying, wait, that show premiered? Uh, trust me, it totally did. Momoa already has another series, Chief of War, set at the streamer, and Jason Momoa has done a lot of TV shows that people haven't noticed existed. And I'm not just talking about Fox's classic North Shore. I'm talking about Frontier on Netflix and uh, and whatever that thing was he did on, on, on AMC. Sundance, right? Sundance, yes, Sundance, not AMC, with red in the title. Totally I like that. Like, turning, no, it's not Turning Red, that's a movie. What, what was that? <laughs> no, totally different thing. Yes, it was. That was a. It was a Native American themed show. Uh, it the was Red Road. Red Road. See, totally remember that vaguely existed. I feel like Josh Henderson or Martin, Martin Henderson. Henderson. Martin Henderson, not Josh Henderson, uh, was in it, and it was from the creator of Eventually uh, Raised by Wolves, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I like that one. I, it was. It wasn't bad. It was sort of. It was. It was slightly ahead of the indigenous television renaissance that we're currently in, and probably they wouldn't make it the same way today that they made it back then. But anyway, so yes, Jason Momoa, lots of TV. C, uh, apparently a show that aired a second season, will air a third season, and then will not exist anymore. And will air no more. Elsewhere, Magnum P.I., the highest rated broadcast show to be canceled last season, which aired, of course, on CBS, is officially returning this time on NBC, which has picked it up with a two-season, 20-episode order. As you may or may not recall, the drama is a co-production with NBC's studio sibling Universal Television and CBS Studio, so it does make sense for NBC to save that. So if you like Magnum P.I., reset your DVR for next fall or whenever the hell that show is going to come out. So as you'll have to do that because it's a different network and your DVR won't pick it up. And also, my unique um, DVR is set for the Tom Selleck Magnum PI, so I don't really necessarily do need Do people to... still use DVRs? Uh, I do. Uh, I but... do, but I never watch anything there. Like, we DVR Succession, but then we, we watch it live on HBO Max. Or we'll DVR stuff, and then we, we just go to Hulu to, to watch it if we miss it. And and honestly, that's what I do also, is that I have a lot of broadcast shows that pile up on my DVR, and then when I get around to actually watching them, what I do is I go to uh, Hulu or Paramount Plus or wherever. So I understand that as a, a way of handling things. So do whatever you want to do to your DVR, and we're old because we believe DVRs are still a thing. Yeah, So and we still have an 8-track player, so there's, there's that too. 
I don't think you do, but I'm we not hundred percent sure that you don't. Joke that was right there. It was low hanging fruit. My I mom understand. did just get rid of a, a Betamax. See, movie, exactly. So. I wasn't. I wasn't sure what you actually had lingering around in garages somewhere, or you know, you could totally be an old fashioned audiophile who, for some reason, stood by the uh, the audio quality of eight tracks as opposed to records. That that fits the Leslie brand. I have a somewhat. record player. See, I just, okay. you know, that I got for Christmas or Hanukkah a couple of years ago. Uh, but uh, records are re- yeah, <laughs> records they're having a resurgence, more... unlike exactly. unlike the A track. Yeah. Which, by <laughs> yes. the way, speaking of you know, speaking of outdated technology, have you seen what's going on with like the VHS market? I am aware that there apparently is a VHS market, which is already remarkable enough. Well, if you're a collector nerd like me, I do obviously baseball cards and uh, and and that kind of thing, but. So what's happened is there's, you know, authenticators, this company called PSA, Professional Sports Card Authenticators. So now they're doing PSA and all these other companies, lookalike companies that are doing professional grading. Now they're grading VHS cassettes. So like if you have, for example, an unopened Top Gun on VHS that has been sitting around at your parents' house for like, you know, however many decades, if you get that graded, there's a chance it's worth like $30,000. Which is, it just blows my mind and it makes me very upset that I got rid of all of that stuff. We definitely didn't have anything that was unopened. On the other hand, when I did my last move, I definitely threw away some old VHS cassettes. Uh, Dan, you could have had an early retirement. (sighs) That is, that is very, very bleak. Um, But no, I, I hope there's a similar resurgence in the, in the DVD marketplace, but I am not holding my breath. Anyway, continuing with headlines in new series orders, Kate Winslet is returning to HBO and not for a second season of Mirror of Easttown, as I've been anticipating for months and months and months. Uh, She will instead be the star and executive producer of the drama series Trust, based on the novel of the same name. Over at Amazon's formerly IMDb TV, currently Freevee, there will be a new Who's the Boss sequel starring Alyssa Milano and Tony Danza, reprising their role from the 1980s ABC comedy. I believe that is from Friend of the Five, uh, Mike Royce, correct? Correct. Uh, on the other hand, while while that does fill me with some enthusiasm, I, I still kind of feel like without Mona, it's not really who's the boss. Uh, and I don't know how many episodes it could possibly take to properly grieve her loss. But the answer is somewhere in the neighborhood of the first three seasons should be dedicated to people only feeling sad about Mona. Yeah. Also, you forgot to, to say Freedy the right way. If, I, I, if you're going to say Quibi, I'm going to say Freedy. I, I want to allow you the ability to do your thing. Um, anyway, Freedy. Speaking of Freevee, except only actually Freeform, which isn't Freevee at all, Freeform has picked up a thriller called The Watchful Eye. It exists. Or will exist. Yeah. And elsewhere, speaking of Disney-owned platforms, ABC is going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Beauty and the Beast with a live-action and animated event special set to air in December. Casting has not yet been revealed, but it will celebrate the 30th anniversary of when the original animated movie became the very first animated feature film to be nominated for Best Picture. So if you're a nerd and you're keeping track of, of the math, the 30th anniversary for the movie itself was last year. A little strange, but fair enough. Uh, is this going to be more in the vein of what they did with Little Mermaid a couple of years ago? I, I definitely remember that was a thing that existed. 
I don't think so. I think this one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, it's going to be executive produced by John M. Chu and counts the director of award shows like the Grammys and the Emmys attached. Um, but what's interesting here is if you remember um, a few months ago, Disney Plus scrapped its planned Beauty and the Beast prequel series starring Josh Gad and Luke Evans reprising their role from the live action redo after spending tens of millions of dollars on that due to creative differences and scheduling issues, et cetera. And of course, the, the, the party line was that they were pausing this and hope to shoot it eventually, but this is, it's not going to happen. So it's interesting that they're com they remain committed to this, of course, beloved title, but uh, yeah, I don't know how many people are going to be in for this, but holiday programming, and it can't be very expensive if it's a, mi if it's a mix of live action and animation. I would suspect there is absolutely a an audience for it, and also that at this point, ABC slash Hulu slash Disney Plus are all very, very much in the business of making extended commercials for things that exist on their various networks. So this is cross-promotion across a brand. Why the hell not? Yeah, and it'll stream, of course, the next day on Disney Plus, not Hulu. Indeed. Uh, so this is casting from a little bit back in the day, but we've been away for a while. Uh, we mentioned, of course, when Jodie Foster was cast as the lead in the fourth season of HBO's True Detective series, and it was announced last week that it received a formal series order, and that the other star will be boxer and actress and motivational speaker Callie Reese. So, looking forward to that one. I believe it will be set in Alaska, but filmed in Iceland, naturally. Sure. And wrapping up headlines, let's call it the Boz Lerman cut. Hulu will be the home for a limited series that expands the filmmaker's 2008 feature, Australia. Sure, and, and, why any not? Any thoughts on that? I never saw that. Uh, I, <laughs> I have not seen that movie under ideal circumstances. I watched it on an airplane, which was definitely not the correct place to um, enjoy, relish, appreciate whatever the big screen vision was that Boz Lerman had on that film. Hulu and my television will probably be a step better, but I can pretty safely guarantee that whenever that eventually arrives, I'll have plenty of other TV to watch. And <laughs> that sounds like it sounds familiar, Dan. It's, <laughs> I think it's you really, said that a time or two before on the It's show. really the story of our lives, and uh, and you know they simply can't cancel enough TV shows to make up for all of the new shows that are coming. I see what you did there, Dan. That's called a transition. Number two. Up second, well, there was a pre-holiday news dump, but this one was more like a cancellation spree. So before we get into the why behind it all, let's just run down what got the axe. Dan, you want to start us off? Sure. Up first, in pre-holiday cancellation news, HBO uh, axed the time traveler's wife after only one season. If you go back to episode 169, nice, of the podcast, <laughs> uh, Stephen Moffat, showrunner, discussed the series as an ongoing series rather than as a one and done limited series. And he said at the time that they only got a third of the way through the book in the first season. It's a drama series with the prospect and the hope of returning. Unfortunately, hopes dashed. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't really get into a lot of the whys of the specifics of individual cancellations. We talk more about the big picture one. But if you've got a showrunner and IP like this, and you're only going one season, some, that means no one watched it. So pretty, pretty basic. Elsewhere, Paramount Plus has unrenewed the Mark Cherry anthology, Why Women Kill, reversing course on, on its previous season three renewal. 
Do you remember that spree of unrenewals, Dan? Because Why Women Kill becomes the latest to, to join that rare club, joining the likes of GLOW, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, The Society. I am not okay with this. I'm sorry, evil, Stumptown. Yeah, unrenewed is still a thing. <sighs> I vaguely remember, but some of those shows existed and actually miss some of those shows and others of those shows not so much. Um, so anyway, continuing along a different path, the CW has given a very quick axe to the Nancy Drew spinoff Tom Swift, uh, which makes it the 11th scripted original to be canceled at the CW this year. That is the most in a decade as the CW's sale remains imminent. That's what I am hearing. Indeed, Dan could come anytime. But then again, we've been saying that for a while now. So it does appear that things seem to be heating up on that front. Uh, as you as we have discussed before, Next Star, the station group, remains the front runner to land the network, at least the majority stake of the network. Elsewhere, Fox has canceled animated comedy Duncanville after three seasons. The show, which was executive produced by Amy Poehler, was a co-production between Universal and Disney, meaning Fox didn't own a single bit of it. So if you kind of read the tea leaves here of, on what's going on with Fox and animation, they've been bulking up with animated per, um, content that's been produced in-house. They've got two new shows that are set for next season that it 100% owns. That's Crapopolis from Dan Harmon and Grimsburg featuring executive producer and leading man John Hamm. The network continues to have a two-hour block of animated comedies on Sunday, which will return in premiere week in September with The Simpsons, The Great North, Bob's Burgers, and Family Guy. All of them are now owned by Disney, save for The Great North, which is a co-production with Fox. So you'll remember Fox bought Bento Box, which is the animated company behind Bob's Burgers and so many others. So ownership matters. We talked about this a little bit with Magnum P.I. and how this helped NBC save the show. Same is true here with cancellations. So if you own it, chances are good you'll get more seasons. And if you don't own it, chances are good you'll be the first to go. I vaguely remember that Duncanville existed. Um, it's amazing that it got three seasons. And yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad show. It was just sort of a show that was not quite good enough to, to hold my attention as opposed to the Great North, which premiered sort of in the same sphere and is a, was for me, me at least a specific a, Specifically? No, not specifically. I don't know. Anyway, a better show yeah. is all I'm saying. Yeah. And speaking of unrenewals, joining USA Network's Evil Knievel series that never was, Peacock said, if you build it, we will cancel it to its Field of Dreams TV series from the Good Place creator and baseball superfan Mike Schur. As of May, the show was gearing up to film in Iowa, though it was not going to shoot at the field that Major League Baseball recreated on the site of the movie. Uh, the show was picked up straight to series last August as part of Schur's big nine-figure overall deal with Universal Television, and the studio plans to shop the show. So that's a bummer, if, especially if you're a baseball fan like we are. We are indeed. Let's talk extensively about baseball, Leslie. Yeah, absolutely. And for the next two <laughs> topics, right? It's all baseball all the time, right? Oh, no, that's not true because... If Let's we talk about if we talk about baseball, we know we're not really talking about the thing that our listeners are most wanting us to talk about. Whereas instead, if you look back at the past couple of weeks, really and truly, there's only one thing that people have been talking about aggressively in the TV sphere, and that, of course, is Stranger Things. So much so that the Netflix smash hit, and we actually believe, regardless of the dumbass 
billion hours watched or whatever number the Netflix minutes? gives. Billion minutes? Hours? Yes. Who minutes? even knows? Know. Uh, here's what I know. Nanoseconds. Here's what I know. Stranger One Things. billion minutes. Stranger Things is almost certainly a genuine hit. So it gets two topics this week. Number three. Up first, we're going to talk about the upside down. And before we get into season four, and you can consider this a spoiler alert that our next topic will have spoilers all over the place. So if you haven't finished volume two of Stranger Things four, you might want to hit fast forward after we're done with this topic. So yes. before we get into season four, we're going to talk about the future of the franchise. So this week, Netflix announced a development slate and basically outlined what what Stranger Things creators Matt and Ross Duffer have in the pipeline next as part of their big nine-figure overall deal. So look, we know that Netflix announced some quote-unquote ratings for the show. It was that Stranger Things 4 has joined Squid Game in the one billion minutes watch club or whatever the hell that is. Um, but more importantly, the siblings who have been under a nine-figure deal with the streamer since 2019 are officially in business for a Stranger Things live action spinoff. I'm gonna wait for that to land because that's really all we know about it. We don't have a writer, we don't have anything else. So it's based on an original idea by the Duffers, surprise, surprise. Of course, remember that that there is a lawsuit ongoing about Stranger Things and property theft, alleged, alleged property, property theft by the Duffers. So uh, yeah, so this is an, an important designation to say that is based on an original idea. So we don't have a timeline. This is again, mere development. So this is the first of five projects that the Duffers have in the works. And in terms of the upside down, the next piece of this is they're also teaming with the Crown Stephen Daldry to produce a stage play set in the world of the upside down. So we know the writer, we know the creative team, we know the director, but we have no idea about the concept. So that's it for the world of Stranger Things. So it's getting a spin, a mystery spinoff and some sort of stage play, which of course I'm sure Netflix will film and make available on its platform. In terms of the Duffers, other development projects, the duo are also developing an adaptation of Stephen King's The Talisman with Steven Spielberg's Amblin set to executive produce. That's been in the works for some time. Our great colleague Boris Kitt broke that exclusive story a couple of years ago. It remains in the development pipeline. Other projects in the works, the Duffers are plotting a new take on the anime show Death Note. And the fifth and final projects in the work is an original series from two writers behind Netflix, Late and Great, The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. So, Dan, the Duffers have a full plate in addition to the fifth and final season of Stranger Things, which is coming, I don't know, sometime this decade. And as far as what's next, Stranger Things 5. These are things that we know that the Duffers are going to do one project at a time. They're so laser-focused on nailing the landing of Stranger Things. They've been laser-focused on Stranger Things 4. If you want to take, you know, take a look at what what's next for them and how they're and what their approach to creative is they're not going to be like Berlantis or Ryan Murphy's and juggling multiple shows at the same time. They're going to be more in line with the Vince Gilligan's who are doing one thing at a time. And that makes all of this, all of what you just listed, which is very impressive and obviously a lot of programming, but it makes it all very, very speculative. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Given the speed at which these seasons have come out, and that's even before the delays that COVID produced to create the delays for season four, there were already long gaps between seasons. And 
My understanding is they haven't started writing season five, at least not formally. Then you throw in the actual production and the question of whether, once again, episodes are going to be between 75 and, I don't know, 142 minutes, since yeah. we'll talk about that in a I bit. heard 11 gets her master's degree in, in, at the end. No? <sighs> but they're not, a- but a they're not aging that fast. Was that fast. a dad joke, Dan? I okay. don't know if it's a good joke, but anyway, it's... Whatever. Anyway, so yes. Uh, so yeah, the idea of this, that we're going to get the fifth season of Stranger Things before, I don't know, late 2023, early 2024. I, who even who even could guess when that's going to come out? So what does that mean for anything else? I don't know. I'm I'm curious about the idea of a straight uh, stage play. I don't see why it's necessarily an inherently bad thing over the years on my various London-based theater trips and whatnot. I've, I've seen a lot of stage plays that shouldn't work based on source material that under most circumstances shouldn't be, you know, a stage play. And it's done fairly well with it. You know, the the Harry Potter play, for example, all six hours of it is, it's not great. But on the other hand, it's a theatrical event. Um, there was a London stage production of Let the Right One In, which was actually really terrific, wonderfully done, the innovative use of the stage and an adaptation of both the original movie and the book that it was based on, etc. So I see no reason why it shouldn't work. And ultimately, it comes down to another one of those things, you know, you want to get people in the door. So Broadway slash London will be perfectly happy to have this to get people in out of curiosity and Netflix will be happy to keep repeating over and over again. We've got various new things from the duffers and given, (laughs) given what the news has been regarding Netflix previous to this, you understand why if they have the things that are verifiable sensations, whether it is stranger things or squid game or whatever, or Bridgerton or or Bridgerton, Witcher, all of which are getting second, exactly. multiple seasons and spinoffs. I mean, not they totally. Which, and so, and so you squid see what the strategy, you see what the strategy becomes is how many different ways can we skin these respective cats? And so if that means a second season, of squid game, if it means it's a reality a, show, based and on a reality game. show based on squid game, rest assured, if those things are successful, a squid game prequel seems totally viable. Why would it not? We've had the animated version of Witcher. We've had spinoffs of Witcher that are coming. So basically Bridgerton, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So so Netflix is finding as many different ways to take the shows that people are still passionate about that haven't been canceled and make sure that those are front and center so that when people start going, oh, well, maybe now's the time to change my subscriptions to a little bit more of the Hulu, Amazon, whatever, and a little bit less the Netflix. Netflix says, oh, no, no, we've got seven different variations on the things that you love. They're coming, we promise. It might not be exactly what you love, but it has something resembling the same name. Yeah, that'll that'll keep some people subscribed or it'll just keep people coming back to Netflix periodically as whatever the new streaming churn is. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's the exact same thing that literally everyone else in town is doing. You know, we've talked about the need for intellectual property and ownership, even in this episode about ownership a lot. But this is literally what Disney is doing. It's literally what every other company is doing. Right. The, The bigger the hit the more spinoffs you're going to get. Look at HBO and HBO Max with with the Game of Thrones world and, you know, in the news of the the John, the recent news of the Jon Snow prequel, right? Was it a prequel or sequel? Sorry, it was the sequel. 
So, I mean, and there's once you have a hit, the chances of, of it continuing on in, in a myriad of ways, it's just it's not a question of if, but when. So that's the landscape that we're in. And yes, you can insert your Hollywood is out of original ideas thing here. But yeah, there you go. Not surprising that Stranger Things is, is going to stick around beyond its fifth season in, in a new form. And if it's anything like if, if what Netflix and the Duffers do is anything like what The Walking Dead and AMC have done, it'll probably be a new show with inexpensive cast members. And I mean, you can even look at what Netflix has done, too, with um, God, what was that great show uh, with, from Lauren Ingrich on my block? Right. Smash hit. Turned its stars, you know, its relatively no-name stars into big social media, with, with into cast members of big social media followings. They renegotiated, scored hefty raises, the same thing that the cast of Stranger Things did. And then what, when it's getting a new spinoff, guess what? It's an entirely new cast. So it makes the price point a little bit more affordable than continuing on with the same show. In contrast to the freebie Bosch spinoff of the TV show Bosch focused on the character Bosch from the TV show Bosch, but not named Bosch anymore because it's totally a spinoff on freebie as opposed to Amazon. So say so, Bosch again. I have no desire to say Bosch freebie. Again, ever. <laughs> Look, it all makes sense. It makes it makes total sense because what cuts through, I feel like we've probably said it once or twice on this podcast, that franchising and IP are what cut through. And we've also said several times that maybe it seemed at a certain point like Netflix had missed the correct window in which to do one of these spinoffs. It, it, like, to me, it really did feel, and that was because there were two years without the show, as if there was a risk that the spinoff had to have been done two years ago when people actually cared and now people were going to be like, eh, whatever, Stranger Things. I don't feel that way at all after the release of the two parts of the fourth season. It feels absolutely like something that people will be perfectly willing to embrace or at least, you know, glance in on. I, people can always... <laughs> People can always say, yes, we want more Game of Thrones, but we don't want House of the Dragon. Yes, we want more Stranger Things, but we don't want a Stranger Things spinoff set around the gang from Chicago from the, the second season who everybody hated. And I don't think that's what the spinoff is going to be, but it could have been if people hadn't hated that episode so much. So yeah, it's this, this is not striking while the iron is hot exactly, but the iron is still much like hotter it, than I thought. Exactly. It's, it feels like the iron has gotten only hotter. Than it, than it previously was because <laughs> look this i mean you can speak maybe you and alan can speak to this i just spoiled what's coming up next but you did ah our, spoiler but maybe you guys can talk about this in, in our next segment but it does feel like stranger things has kind of gone from that explosive first season where everyone it became this like word of mouth sensation and then season two had all this anticipation and it just creatively didn't deliver and then three i guess i don't really remember three i don't i stopped watching in season two but Three, it just kind of fizzled. And then now all of a sudden four, it just blown it back right back up again. So you guys tell me. I feel like that's a pretty good transition. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Up next, spoiler alert, 
We're going to get into how Volume 2 of Stranger Things 4 ended, and to do so, we are joined this week by Friend of the Five and Rolling Stone's chief TV critic, the one and only Alan Seppenwall. Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. Always a pleasure, guys. So I just said I checked out of Stranger Things after season two, or actually, I don't even think I finished season two, but you guys are both all over the Stranger Things beat. Dan, take it away. Well, Leslie, Leslie, that means you've missed all of Maya Hawk as Robin. And I think regardless of your other issues with the show, you would really enjoy Maya Hawk as Robin. Am I wrong? I Dan? have heard that. You're not the first person to tell me that. This is absolutely true. And I think that I, realistically, the second season was not necessarily a bad time to check out. I think probably season three, you would have liked more than whatever you checked out on on the second season. Uh, but it felt as if the world was, you know, maybe not done with Stranger Things, but the world might be experiencing Stranger Things fatigue. So I guess my first question, Alan, is... Yes. Is the world actually... Was the world actually fatigued with Stranger Things and we just rediscovered our love? Did absence make the heart grow fonder? Why is it that Stranger Things has become the thing that everybody has been talking about for basically a solid month straight? Well, I mean, I think, A, Netflix was clever in splitting up the season, whether it was, as you guys have talked about, just for Emmys or because it was a way to sort of do a fake weekly release where they're like, no, we still only do binges, but one of those binges is two episodes that happen to run a combined four hours. I mean, like, it was... Or if, that, or, or if those episodes just weren't finished yet and the Duffers needed more time. Yes, re regardless of the reason... They just the fa the way in which they released it extended the conversation in a way that does not generally happen with Netflix scripted shows. It's also again we don't know how many people are watching any of these really, but this is anecdotally the biggest hit on Netflix um, or one of the two biggest, I guess, with Bridgerton. And like it's been away for a long time, so it's a show that everybody talks about. Whereas a lot of these other streaming shows that Dan and I and you Leslie tend to make a big deal over, like. Maybe 300,000 people are watching, if that. This is, you know, orders of magnitude higher. And it's it's a mostly good season. It's a way too long season, but it has some of my favorite things Stranger Things has ever done in it. It's just surrounded by a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, we talked in the in the last segment about all of the various spinoffs and stage plays and other things that are apparently coming. And one of the things I did acknowledge is that while a lot of the time when we talk about Stranger Things, we not Stranger Things, when we talk about streaming television shows, we feel as if we're either generally speaking in an echo chamber or we're trying to force the echo chamber to actually speak about such things. Like if we just keep saying over and over again, Folks need to watch We Are Lady Parts. Maybe at some point people will, but we'll never at any point ever know how many people actually watched it. Whereas with Stranger Things, as with Bridgerton, as with Squid Game, as with a couple other shows, I, I fully believe it is a successful thing. So, okay, you talked about how you felt as if there was a lot of good stuff and you hinted at something that Leslie would have <laughs> surely probably enjoyed. Uh, Leslie, who... Gave up in season two and is now playing with her dog. Uh, she so, she okay. just quit. She quit, Leslie. I'm so disappointed in you. How dare you ever stop watching any television show? <sighs> well, it just, I couldn't get through season two. <laughs> I was like, I love season one, like everybody else. And I was just so propulsive and I couldn't stop. And then season two, I was like, what? The hell is but did you get to the yeah. episode with the punk rock kids in, in Chicago? Because if you didn't get there, then you didn't really get to the pinnacle of season two. 
I got there, and it might have been what, why I checked out. I can't. God, I, that uh, that I episode just still makes through. me so mad because I've heard anecdotally that like among the reasons that Netflix does not allow their creators to do more episodic storytelling is because of the response to that one episode. They're like, oh, obviously our audience doesn't want standalone stories, so no one is ever allowed to do it again. <sighs> well, I mean, it's a cautionary tale. There's there's no question that that episode could have been something else or could have been better. And I don't hate that episode as much as some people do, but I fully understand why some people hate the episode. I, and, I, I <laughs> But it's funny that? because, like, in hindsight, if you go back and you look at the season of Stranger Things, it was built to have a couple of them. Like, you 100% could have done an all-Russia episode. You could have squeezed almost all of the Joyce and Hopper and Murray stuff into that and then, you know, resolved it in the finale. And you probably could have done the same thing with Eleven in the, you know, sensory deprivation tank in Nevada and just had that be an episode with all the flashbacks. And then the rest of the season is just bouncing around different things happening in Hawkins. I think the all the complaints about padding and length would have felt much differently that way. But, you know, I guess they're not going to do that anymore because the punk rock Chicago kids episode scared them off. And I, I sort of... I don't know who exactly or what exactly to blame for the misshapen nature of the sh of the season. So I think maybe that some of the answer is that when they tried doing more standalone episodes, it caused concern for some viewers. But then I also wonder how much is simply contractual finagling is that they got to pay people for a nine episode season as opposed to a 13 episode season and just constantly over the course of these nine episodes, I was thinking, okay, well, there's the cutoff point for that episode. Now we could move on to the next episode. And, you know, sort of in my mind, playing the can this be reformulated game, what would your hunch be or what would your instinct be on the reasons why the season was made in the way it was and what a better way for the season to have been presented might have been? I think one of them is what you talked about. It's a money thing. A lot of the time when you look at like, why are we splitting this season and, you know, treating basically two seasons as one? Why are we doing fewer episodes but longer? It's because it's cheaper to do it that way. Um, but I also think that one of the issues with the show is the Duffers have created all of these characters that they love and they keep adding new characters each season whom they grow to love as well, like Maya Hawk as Robin. And at a certain point, they're just they're not willing to let almost anybody go. I mean, we're, we're spoiling the season right here. Yes, we are. We are spoiling the season at this point. We haven't spoiled anything yet, but we're going to spoil the season now. Spoiler right now. OK, none of the original characters over, you know, over the course of four seasons now has died. Um, excuse Max, me. Excuse me. Barb died. Fine. Nobody cares about Barb. OK, thank you. OK. <laughs> <laughs> just, right. just, had to, just had to get a little justice for Barb in there, uh, Alan. Okay. It's what we do. <laughs> Max and Billy are introduced in season two. Billy is killed off, but Max becomes a core part of the group. Max technically clinically dies in this finale, but, you know, and it appears to be brain dead, but obviously she's going to come back next season. Um, just like they keep introducing folks almost all of whom survive. The only character who, like, actually definitively dies and who I don't expect to see come back, except maybe as a ghost this year, is Eddie. So, like, if you have this show where you keep bringing in more and more people and you take villains like Steve and you turn them into heroes who are then getting as much screen time as your original heroes, things just keep expanding and becoming untenable. I, You know, 
I love David Harbour as Hopper, but, like, if they had just killed him off at the end of the shopping mall season, A, like, that would have really rang as a really potent sacrifice, and B, we wouldn't have needed to spend all of this time, you know, getting into and out of Russia. I mean, we would have lost David Harbour holding up the Conan the Barbarian sword, and that would have been sad, but I think on the whole more became less this year. Yeah, when you stop and pause and think about the amount of time that was spent discussing travel logistics, getting into and out of Russia, into and out of the prison, are we going to get a plane? Well, yes, we are. Fine, let's meet Yuri. Yuri is somewhat amusing. Fine, let's go to Yuri. Yuri has to get a redemption arc. What like what are they even doing here? Yeah, th- definitely spin-off. Def- spin-off. Yes, the all Yuri spinoff of, uh, <laughs> oh, no. of Stranger Things would not really be the a, peanut butter a, smuggler. I mean, the, the title is the, already there. The Barb prequel. No, just me. Okay, stop. There are people who probably would like a Barb prequel, uh, and then there are, are even more people who would probably feel like a Barb prequel was explicitly trolling them and nobody but them. Uh, basically, any TV critic you know would take a Barb spinoff uh, personally. And no, there's there's no question that there is much too much love for these main characters. And I don't know if it's a tentativeness about not wanting to kill kids, though at this point the kids all look 30, so I don't think there's any emotional ramifications to that. Uh, but but yeah, it's just the fact that going into the finale, everyone was talking over the last two episodes, everyone was doing their interviews and everyone was like, oh, the finale is so epic. Oh, the finale is so brutal. Oh, whatever. And I got to the end of the four hours of the two part finale or whatever. And my reaction was, wow, they killed off almost nobody of note. Where was the viciousness that we were promised? And yeah, I, I feel like the show did lose something from not well, being I mean, I mean, enough. the hell, the Hellmouth did open up into Sunnydale, so I'm, maybe that's the brutality they're referring to. But uh, yeah, I don't quite get it. Uh, or I guess maybe they feel as if some people are more invested in Matthew Modine than other people, because whatever. But again, uh, can can I ask you a question, Dan? Yeah. How was Matthew Modine alive in this season? Did they ever explain that? <laughs> that? And that's the problem with it, is that even when somebody died, you know, Billy made at least three or four appearances this season. Not enough yeah. to actually count as a legitimate appearance, but there's absolutely no reason at all why Eddie can't become a figment of Dustin's imagination in season five and appear in four or five or six episodes. <laughs> Eddie can appear as much as anyone wants, and he can just stand on top of trailers playing musical accust- uh, accompaniments to to freak out the Demo bats or what? What did we call them? I, apparently, they have a name, but I don't. I don't remember. But B, uh, Eddie playing Master of Puppets. I, I watch Netflix with the captions on, and when it says Eddie starts to play Master of Puppets, my Metallica, my fist went up in the air. Like again, there's there's a lot of really good and fun things in this season. It's just buried under way too much. I watched that scene for the record as a Metallica <laughs> fan. I watched that scene. And 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 what did you make of that scene, Leslie, with out of context. no context? Out for of it. context, I was like, I have no idea what's going on, but yay for Metallica getting paid. <laughs> It was, I don't know. Yay for Kate Bush getting paid? Oh, well, I mean, Kate Bush definitely got paid, and Metallica definitely got paid. And I think that probably within the confines of the heightened world of the show, there's no reason why that scene didn't make sense and couldn't be enjoyed entirely non-ironically. And so I, I thought it was totally amusing, by all means. I didn't necessarily love Eddie as much as some people did, but, uh, but I did 
dig that. I mean, Eddie was definitely not as universally beloved as the new favorite character that everyone has on Stranger Things. Where did you end up coming down on, of course, Argyle? No. Just no. No. <laughs> I mean, okay, I was amused when Argyle met um, New Mexico Argyle, or whatever southwestern state they were in by that point. Um, Nevada, maybe. When Argyle met his doppelganger at the other Surfer Boy Pizza, that was fun. The rest of Argyle was like kind of desperate and thirsty comic relief that mostly was not working. And mostly wasn't needed because the various comic relief characters from previous seasons still existed. Like, I think that someone in their mind probably for that thought, okay, the characters who we've reliably laughed at in the past are at this point so traumatized that we can't get glib humor out of them quite as much as before. So, you know, maybe Dustin can't be as funny as as he once was, let's find someone who can get some of the laughs. I'm just, I'm giving you the principle that I can think that I can justify on that. But here's, here's the weird thing. So they do, they've been doing this basically every season. It's just much more noticeable as the cast has gotten bigger, which is they split the ensemble into different groups, all with their own side quests to go off. And it's really noticeable here, not only because the amount of characters they have, but because they're no longer all in Hawkins. So you've got the group who are in Russia, you've got the group who are in California, who then head their way into Utah and Nevada and everything else. And you have the group in Hawkins. So they're, they're not physically together. And the way in which they separated the characters this year is that none of the funny ones are in the California slash Nevada area. So they obviously felt like, okay, Dustin and Steve and Robin and Murray and anyone else who can get a laugh is elsewhere. We've got to have somebody funny here because Will is not funny. Jonathan is not funny. I'm not even sure what Mike is anymore at this point. And Eleven is obviously a very serious character. So we will bring in the stoner pizza guy just to leaven up those scenes. And that makes sense. And I think that makes sense once you make the determination that you're not going to separate out and do a contained episode featuring those characters. Once you feel as if you have to be able to sprinkle those characters in throughout, you're totally right that they put the, that they put the California storyline entirely on a lot of people who are somewhere between very, very somber and constantly miserable. Like will <laughs> funny will. for oddball. Funny for oddball reasons, but not necessarily reliably funny characters like Eleven. As you say, whatever the heck Mike is, I, I don't know what that character's voice is at this he's point. He's the so main I don't know. character of the show and they don't know what to do with him. It's so bizarre. <laughs> well, he's the he's the main character of the show in an even slightly less plausible way than Bran was the main character of Game of Thrones. Like, I, I think, he, like, I can see how you can justify saying oh that's the arc but the last two episodes contained like 10 to 15 minutes of people reassuring mike that he's really important to the series yes. <laughs> like will has to explain to him really seriously mike you're the hero of the story this is all about you and mike goes i'm not fully convinced then like an hour later eleven's <laughs> like mike you're really and truly the most important character oh. in this entire story we can't do this without you and mike's like fine i'm, I'm the hero of the whole thing give me the Damn. iron throne if you're, if you're gonna do this you have to use voices man i'm sorry you're gonna have to do this again in voices i there people on stranger things don't have 
voices. And what certainly, do, what does a Mike Finn does... Wolfhard impression sound like? Yes, I cannot do. Come a on, Dan. Finn... No, I am you not even going to. Listen, do a... you didn't. You didn't do your Yiddish for Pamela Adlon. Can you at least do do some Stranger Things impersonations here? Come no, on. I feel the people feel... demand it. The people do not require anyone to do Stranger Things impressions because I don't know how one even would. Uh, but I'm sure people have Argyle impressions and that they're largely hilarious. Whoa. That was my Argyle impression. That was your Argyle impression? I, I haven't really workshopped it yet. Give it time. Ooh. Is this like a Blossom thing? Ooh, like that one? Like, I think what was it? Joey? I was, was, Joey Joey was, awesome, I was yeah. yeah. I was thinking more like early Keanu was what both you yes. and probably he were going for, uh, but yeah, not great, it, not not successfully. But on the it's, other hand, it's funny Argyle, though. I'm sorry, Dan, he remains alive. No, I was just going to say he remains alive. So you'll get many, many more reasons to uh, to fall more and more deeply in love with Argyle as we move forward. But it's also funny, like if you look at the California group, obviously, like Eleven is you know hugely important to the show. But in terms of characters who are quote unquote fun, none of them were there. Like all these sort of most colorful characters on the series were for the most part back in Hawkins. And so it sort of, it exacerbates this problem of why are we jumping over to this other thing? I want to see Steve and Dustin, you know, bantering with each other, that kind and, of thing. And, and they had to keep trying to find ways of doing it. Like there was like 45 minutes where they went to visit Dustin's girlfriend, which yes. I find vaguely impossible to remember because it happened, and I don't know why it happened, and it could have been deleted 100% with no loss to the overall story. You could have removed all of that stuff with Dustin's girlfriend and her hacking and her father and her weird foster family and the computer that went into her father's office that they had to break into. That was like 45 minutes of the season, and episodes were 75 minutes long. Okay, but Dan, <laughs> you're leaving out the po the distinct possibility that much like the Chicago punk rock kids were hoped for once upon a time and that it didn't work because people hated the episode, that Susie and her enormous eccentric family are not going to be the subjects of the Stranger Things spinoff that Leslie and other people have reported. So it's like, it's like, it's half Stranger Things, half big love. It's kind of bigger love is what it is. With, with a splash of just the 10 of us, you know. Ah. God, I would watch the hell out of that. I wouldn't really watch. So, but I mean, it is the story about a young proto hacker growing up in a wacky Mormon family in 1980s Utah. Someone yeah, you get, you could, get Matt Shackman to direct it. It sells itself. Somebody could make a good TV show out of that. I am not in any way convinced that there's evidence that uh, the Duffers are those people. But yeah, totally. But yeah, but you're raising a more a more salient point, which is there's so many things, both big and small, that could have been cut out of this season. Like it's someone the other day, I think it was like Mark Harris quote tweeted an old like video of a Magnum PI episode where there's like three minutes of Magnum like parking his car and getting out and kicking off his like docksiders and how once upon a time TV had room to just waste your time like that because what was going on and there's so much of that in this season. There's so much like. Just people like walking around a corridor and then walking around another corridor and walking around another, like every single scene could have been tightened up on top of just like dropping out certain subplots altogether, like Yuri getting a redemption arc. It's just it's nobody wanted to trim anything. And so you have situations like 
In the finale, Steven, Robin, and Nancy are going up a staircase in the Upside Down, and they're trying to avoid stepping on these, these tentacles or whatever they are that, that Vecna controls. And they Robin accidentally does, because she's a klutz, and suddenly they're all being strangled to death for the next half hour, because we don't see them again other than, like, one very quick glimpse. The story does not come back to them at all for 30 solid minutes before they're rescued. Like, you can't do that in terms of structuring a finale, in terms of editing it, where, like, you're just leaving characters in limbo for that amount of time. The linear progression and passage of time throughout the entire season, I would say, was vaguely bizarre, because you raised the question of whether... Arizona Argyle was actually New Mexico Argyle or whether he was Nevada Argyle and trying to figure out where the California group was driving to at what pace, how long that was taking them, why it was taking them as long as they got. If they actually only got probably like four hours outside of Los Angeles at all, while whatever, I mean, that's not even the amount of time it would have taken for Murray and Joyce to fly to Alaska in the first place. Definitely there was, there was, bad parallel structuring that could have been avoided in any number of ways, but the most obvious way is standalone episodes in Russia, standalone episode in California, and just don't worry about it. But that was not the path they took. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And yet, I, I still really did like an awful lot of it. Like, I know it's we are largely harping on the negative here because there's a lot of dumb choices that were made. And yet those moments that we've talked about, or like the first major use of running up that hill when Max is floating in the air and the other kids save her. Like, when Stranger Things is cooking, it's still such a fun and effective show. It's just getting more and more bloated with each passing season. And... As you say, so you so you give the West Coast group none of the people who are amusing. You you somehow make that into the permutation that doesn't work. And yet so many of the show's permutations do work. And so many of them honestly involve Steve. You kind of pair Steve up with people and they instantly become yes. much more entertaining. So you have Steve with Dustin, and that's a great pairing. You have Steve with Nancy. That's apparently a surprisingly sweet pairing. Uh, everyone knows Steve and Robin are, at this point, complete and total gold. But you yeah. put Steve, Robin, and Nancy together, and they're a great group. So Yeah, Nancy was like a drip before this season. I would, like, dread Nancy scenes. And now when you put her almost exclusively with Steve or Robin, it's like, Nancy's awesome. I love Nancy. But part of the problem, I think, is that Jonathan is awful. And I, I yeah. don't know that the show, unfortunately, has any realization of that at all. And I think they really, 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 really would have been well served to give Jonathan a heroic departure <laughs> in these episodes. Because, like, the, re the only reason not to do it is to feel sad about the trauma it would bring to that family. Because that family has had so much trouble and they're already yeah. mopey. But Jonathan is not accomplishing anything, and he mostly is looking older and older and older, and it becomes the who has the worst haircut that they're stuck with in that family race uh, between Jonathan and Will, and I don't, I don't know the answer. Why does Noah Schnapp, why are they still making him wear a bowl haircut at that age? Why would you do that to anyone? <laughs> the thing I like is that at this point, Will and Noah Schnapp have kind of become the Saturday Night Live parody version of it starring Will Forte as Will. <laughs> and, and, and like, 
I watch him and that's all I see is that's the funny Will Forte version of this character who's being really, really sad and mopey and is really not dealing with his sexuality in any way that the show is dealing with fast enough. Come on, guys, figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've heard some people defend it and say the, the point is like it's, you know, in, in the mid 1980s, it would be very hard for. You know, a gay boy, especially at a time, you know, when there was so much homophobia and AIDS and all of that, would just like not be capable of saying the words I'm gay. And I get I get it to that degree. But to like not have Jonathan say it to like when you when you have Robin as a counterpoint on the show. And I know she's female. She's a little bit older. She has a different personality. Like people's journeys are not the same. It's just it it plays so strangely like the show is working very very hard to not just have anybody anywhere say it yeah, and even even robin she isn't saying it for the most part she has but mostly yeah. at this point it's it's all insinuation between the people who know and therefore don't need to say it and the people yeah. who don't know and therefore don't say it but there's no actual robin announcing to everybody yo i'm gay date me band girl but I, but no i think you're completely and totally right that, that there's no question mid 1980s this is this is a young kid he would well hard to know at this point how old anyone is again because he looks 30 but it, there's no way of necessarily saying oh of course he should have been more out or more aware of who or what he is and there's also always the possibility that he keeps trying to bring himself to say something that isn't, in fact, what we're assuming he's saying. I mean, he could have a totally different insecurity slash um, whatever. It, it might not be as simple as, oh, he's gay and he doesn't know how to tell anyone. So who knows? Okay. We're just we're just assuming that's what it is, because it's the thing that makes sense based on context. But based on lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of context. I, I'm not saying we're making this up out of whole cloth. <laughs> there is there is justification for people believing that that is the thing that the show is trying to convey. Yeah, but it's definitely not conveying it at any rapid speed. And by the time no. we get to season five uh, and everyone is now in their mid 40s and basically it has become it has become it only they were able to use the same cat sort of boyhood meets it because everyone has grown up so much and nothing wrong with boyhood meets it. Cause that's basically what it is. So anyway, <laughs> what else do you want to the talk more, about? The more season? you say it, the more confused I get, even though I know exactly the point you were making. I, I understand. I have just repeated it over and over again. Boyhood makes much more sense. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, there, there's a lot we could talk about. What else do you want to talk about? There's so many things that happen because, again, these episodes are all 8,000 minutes long. <sighs> God. Well, what about the finale, guys? I mean, you know, I, I did hear that it does. There is an homage to the talisman, which we confirmed Netflix confirmed this week. The Duffers are adapting. It's not an homage. It's a direct reference. They're they're reading the talisman. It's uh, yes, <laughs> that that is right there. It's them saying we love the talisman very much. We're influenced by the talisman. Hi, the talisman. We're going to make the talisman because the Duffer brothers, when it comes to the things that influence them, they really don't like people to have ambiguity about it. They they want you to know all of the references they're making. And yes, there is absolutely a very explicit nod to the talisman. <laughs> Which is not my favorite Stephen King book, uh, just as a personal thing. So I'm I'm less excited about that, um, or 
Stephen King plus Peter Straub anyway, though. All right. Well, what about, okay, so the finale, obviously, aside from it being a bazillion minutes long, can do you guys want to talk about how it sets up, what, what may be to come and what you're hoping comes in the final season? Well, I mean, the, the good thing about it is, you know, be, because the Upside Down has, has opened a rift into Hawkins and that's what they're going to be dealing with, you're not going to be sending characters halfway across the globe. Everyone most likely is going to have to be there. I'm sure they'll still be split up within Hawkins and into the Upside Down and all that, but you're going to have much less sort of scattered storytelling. And I think the show is at its best when it has a mass of people in the same place. Like, I like that epilogue. I don't know that, like, we needed 30 minutes more of just people hanging around after all that, but it was just nice to see, like, everybody at the cabin uh, reuniting after all that time. And so at least we're going to get that. I, I don't know, Dan, what do you want to see in, in a final season? It's tough to, it's tough to necessarily No, Like you say, it was the, the finale was very intense. And so giving it that 30 minute cool down at the end was probably necessary for viewer purposes, even if it wasn't necessarily illuminating in overall storytelling purposes. And I, it, like lots of references very obviously to Empire Strikes Back. And I, I understand that. And I understand why people would want to be saying this is the Empire Strikes Back ending. And, you know, that's fine. I would say it's not nearly as brutal and cliffhangery as Empire Strikes Back was. And again, that goes back to the inability to be as probably vicious and merciless as the Duffers needed to be with some of these characters, there needed to be a little bit more gravity at the end other than just, well, we accomplished this thing, but something much, much bigger is coming and we don't know what to do about it. We'll get back to you in two years. And that's kind of where it left. And the fact that the show moves as slowly as it does in terms of production does leave me a little bit concerned because I don't know that, okay, so the world is opening up and, and it's horrifying. Sure. But I don't know that I, I need, you know, in two years, is that going to be enough to keep me engaged? I don't. Yeah. And there's an and there's there's two tricky things here. One is like it's one thing if you're away for two years and you're starting a relatively new story, even though it's continuing stuff that's happened before. It's another thing to come back in two years and you're basically going to have to pick up right where you left off. Um, and then the other thing is the, the age stuff that we keep making jokes about, but it's unavoidable like how tall is finn wolfhard going to be when they are making season five will he be able to dunk a basketball i suspect so there are several problems there the first is that you don't know if finn wolfhard can currently dunk a basketball that's true that's true the only one of the kids whose <laughs> basketball skills you can speak to with any particular knowledge is caleb mclaughlin so uh, yeah but i think lucas is we, we don't know if this is like a Landra and Friday Night Light situation where he is playing either like worse than his actual ability or perhaps better than his actual ability. Regardless, I think it's much more likely to be a Tyra uh, playing volleyball on Friday Night Light situation <laughs> where they will have they've pretty much already forgotten that Lucas was a basketball star in the first or second episode of this season. And I doubt that it's a thing that's going to come up again in season five. I mean, seriously, uh, prove me wrong season five of Stranger Things. But if I had to get make my guess, 
Lucas as basketball star will never be mentioned again on this show. And yet uh, they I, devoted <laughs> they devoted so much time this season to the rest of the basketball team turning evil and going on a witch hunt for Eddie. At the same time, they devoted so much of the season to like the U.S. military, like a faction of them trying to kill Eleven. There's a like the show just keeps doubling up on like unnecessary sort of distracting menaces who are there to fill a little bit of time. Oh, God. The And, and the thing with the different military factions was another thing that was badly handled. Um, I, I had to explain to our friend and colleague, uh, uh, Greg Elwood, why exactly the military people were opening fire on military people in the base in New Mexico or Arizona, whatever it was, because the show did not do a great job of distinguishing between the Paul Reiser faction of the military, the Matthew Modine faction of the military, and that guy who killed people in California and caused the family to leave California faction of the military. They they did not do a good job of differentiating between those groups. They were just kind of random military adversaries and an excuse for a no doubt very expensive helicopter crash. That helicopter uh, went total boom. Dan, I have an important question. Yeah. Is, Ele is Eleven still wanted for hitting that girl in the nose with a skate? Wait, well, I mean... If she returned to California to attempt to complete her year, I suspect she would at least face detention for that, uh, despite the fact that it took place, obviously, not at a school-related situation. People would be concerned about Eleven returning to school, but I don't think anyone's actually going to notice that suddenly Eleven and Will are no longer at their mean public school in California. I think I think things are just going to move on beyond that. So, but, so, so the, mean, the mean girl's not like, I could certainly imagine a circumstance where one of the season five subplots is the mean girl's parents like have hired a bounty hunter to travel to Indiana to bring Eleven back to face justice for hitting their beautiful daughter in the face with a roller skate. Well, that would be a horrible subplot. <laughs> would you? I, but I, would you put it past the duffers at this point just for filler? It's going to be a two-hour episode standalone. <laughs> no, they don't uh, do standalones. That's the whole point, Leslie. I know. That's why they're doing it. <laughs> so it's just, just going to be. You it's just going to be seven minutes in each episode of the new girl's families of the <laughs> mean girl's family's bodyguard going to Hawkins <laughs> and being like, "We're bringing you back to justice. We don't care that there's red glowy stuff all over Hawkins and that the world is about to be torn apart." She's getting suspended back in California. Yes, and you were, and she is the only one who could stop it. No. We had to pay for rhinoplasty, and therefore you're going to have to pay as well. <sighs> yeah, I, I think we will probably never hear about them ever again. Oh, uh, well. It's, you know, the, there's there's a lot on the show's mind, and there's only so much time that can be spent on uh, Lucas Basketball Star or <laughs> Mean Girl at the Roller Rink, except that that was a couple hours of television. It was That's the spinoff, right? Could be, could be. I mean, if the spinoff does not involve at least two of Steve, Robin, and Dustin, I'm not sure what we're doing here. Ooh, wait, we we think that it's going to be a play, but it's actually going to be like Starlight Express. It is going to be <laughs> an all-roller skating musical featuring that mean girl from the start of season four. No additional context. Eleven is not going to be a character in it. It's just going to be the mean girl from season four with a bandage on her nose. I would buy a ticket to that. Yes, you would. You would probably not buy a ticket to that, but it you is. would go if it was a comp ticket, right? Y yes. Or there if I was in London and uh, like 
I couldn't get anything else at the Leicester Square TKTS line, and there were really discounted tickets, I, I think I would probably pay money. If, if my editors at Rolling Stone asked me to go and review it, I would somewhat reluctantly do it, but I would do it. <sighs> well, who knows when that's actually going to happen? Probably not soon enough for any of us to worry about it. Well, well, thank you so much, Alan, for joining us for this segment. We really appreciate you popping in. I love that we were only going to do about 15 minutes and we've done over 30, which seems very like apropos for Stranger Things season four. Exactly. <laughs> well, well put, well put. Well, for more of Alan Seppenwall's thoughts on Stranger Things, head over to rollingstone.com. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner among this week's major new launches, Moonhaven arrives on AMC+. Former ABC-turned-Hulu comedy Maggie makes its debut on the streaming platform. Apple launches Blackbird. Netflix debuts Boo Bitch. Peacock has Trigger Point. Tuca and Birdie returns to Adult Swim. What We Do in the Shadows makes its triumphant return to FX. And the second half of Better Call Saul's final season arrives on AMC proper. Dan, what you got this week? Lots and lots of stuff. Moon Haven Wider than a mile I'm crossing you in style Someday Anyway, Moonhaven is of course on AMC+. It has already premiered by the time you are getting this. And it is a show that was a particular amusement slash interest to me because it was created by Peter Ocko, who was the showrunner on the great, dearly departed Lodge 49. And its writing staff includes Jim Gavin, who was the creator of Lodge 49. And so th there was a part of me that was kind of hoping, okay, it's going to be Lodge 49 on the moon, because while there is not a huge audience out there for Lodge 49 on the moon, we're, we're loud and proud and legion. Uh, it, it's really probably not. You you can tell that there was a conspicuous effort to give the season a plot and hook that you could actually explain to people, which was always part of the problem with Lodge 49. Is that there was just no way of telling anyone what that show was. It was a, a secret society, and there was a mysterious book, and, you know. And trust me, though, if you haven't watched Lodge 49, which is all I believe on AMC+, along with Moonhaven, you totally should. So the plot of Moonhaven is basically 100 plus years in the future. Uh, the Earth was falling apart. We sent a colony to the moon, along with a strange uh, artificial intelligence thing that was supposed to learn to fix all of the Earth's problems. And the moon set up strange new families, clans built on not blood, but randomly assigned families because apparently blood was the problem with humanity, tribalism, blah, blah, blah. But then on the moon, just as the moon people are getting ready to come back to Earth with the new technology to fix the Earth, there's a murder. Somebody is trying to stop the moon people from coming back to Earth. So that actually is a plot that you can explain. There's a lot of good stuff here. I don't think that as a mystery or a thriller, and AMC Plus is billing it as a suspense thriller, I don't think that's what it is. I don't think it's successful at being that, and I don't think anyone is going to enjoy it on those terms. But if you take it on a kind of loopy speculative fiction level, and you go, okay, what is the development of the culture on the moon that would allow for this technology to develop and for this kind of new agey, 
uh, midsummer type, the type um, vaguely pagan ritualistic thing with flower children and dances and stuff like that. How did this all come together? I think there's a lot of fun to this. I think there's also a lot of fun to uh, Kadeem Hardison. People should watch uh, Teenage Bounty Hunters, uh, formerly on Netflix, because he was really good on that. And Dominic Monaghan as a pair of detectives who have never had to handle a murder investigation before. So in that respect, there are elements of Yiddish Policeman's Union or uh, it's uh, what did I reference? Also, there was the movie and the graphic novel Whiteout. Um, there, there are a lot of examples of the people dealing with murder in a place where no murder has existed before genre. And I, I think there's fun to that because suddenly these two cops who have never had to be cops before because there's no real crime suddenly they have to tap into their inner Sherlock Holmeses, and it's it's amusing. And I think there are things to enjoy here. It just simultaneously is not fully satisfying if what you're looking for is something in the Lodge 49 vein, nor is it fully satisfying if you're looking for a suspense thriller. So you have to know it's kind of neither fish nor fowl, and you have to accept that the pieces don't always come together, but sometimes they do. So yes, Moonhaven on AMC already has launched, or at least the first couple episodes. Uh, also, having already premiered or having started with the first few of its episodes is Maggie on Hulu. It was originally developed for and ordered by ABC and then migrated. Yeah, they, they cited scheduling issues that, and in that they had no space for it, so they put it on Hulu. Because you can't find a space for a random 22-minute single-camera comedy? It doesn't seem unreasonable to be able to find space for it but well they have all the unscripted stuff that you know in the summer and they didn't want to burn it off so they why not why not put it on hulu instead of cramming it into a schedule that's filled with unscripted stuff and and that is entirely fair what well, the answer to that question i would say is because it feels like an abc show uh not exactly like one of the successful abc family comedies which have been sort of the brand but a lot like some of the <laughs> unsuccessful ABC uh, scripted shows. So maybe it's a little bit like Selfie or something like that. I, I just perked up the ears of exactly seven Selfie fans out there, but they exist. Uh, so I've, I've watched a half dozen of these episodes and it's low grade likable is what it is. It's, it's not hugely hilarious. It's not hugely, it has, Almost no visual style or aesthetic to it at all. I would say it looks about as cheap as a network multi a single cam can look. It's it's very flat and stage bound, and that's just what it is, and that's fine. Uh, Rebecca Rittenhouse, who's the lead, I've I've liked her in a lot of things. She's very much a broadcast kind of leading lady, and and this is an amusing and perky vehicle for her, and she's very well paired with uh, Nicole Sakura, who was one of the breakouts of Superstore. Uh, and she was very good there. She's very good here. It's a, it's a really likable, generally supporting cast. And so you just have to go, ooh, I liked Angelique Cabral from a bunch of stuff. Uh, Chloe Bridges was on The Carrie Diaries. Leonard, uh, Leonardo Nam is always fun. Oh, look, it's it's Chris Elliott and Carrie Kenny. There are a lot of people to really like in this. It, it's it's just never exactly 
successful enough at any of the things it's going for. It's it's not really hilarious. It's a little romantic, but not hugely that. What it is, is it's a perfectly fine background piece of television with generally likable stars. So that's fine. I, you know, no, no reason why it can't be that. So that's uh, that's Maggie on on Hulu. Much less instantly likable, but probably better is Blackbird on on Apple TV Plus. It is adapted by Dennis Lehane, the great Dennis Lehane, one of my favorite crime writers uh, and a solid TV writer who has been due to eventually get a TV show to run himself. I'm still ticked off that the uh, Kenzie and Gennaro series hasn't been properly brought to television. Gone Baby Gone was a fine movie, but I'm not sure it was exactly the Kenzie and Gennaro series in terms of tone. And then there was a Fox pilot two years ago that didn't go forward, and it didn't seem to be very well cast, so... Whatever. Anyway, so this is based on James Keene's memoir. And the story of James Keene is he was a cocky drug dealer who got sent to prison for 10 years. And then for reasons that don't completely make sense, but you just have to kind of accept them because at least somewhat it apparently happened in real life. So it's real. So you got to believe it. Uh, he was given the opportunity to go undercover for the FBI at a different prison where he was tasked with getting additional confessions out of an alleged serial killer uh, played by Paul Walter Hauser. At the same time, intercut for no good reason is the initial investigation to bring down that serial killer. So Greg Kinnear serves zero purpose here. And every time the show cuts to him, it is, it just drains everything. It's uh dull subplot. I do not blame Greg Kinnear in the slightest for it. It's just not good. Um, and yeah, so he basically goes into a maximum security prison undercover and has to try to get this very, very scary killer to tell him the truth. And so there are definitely shades of um, Manhunter or Mindhunter. Those are two different shows, but whatever. Uh, the one that's the David Fincher show on Netflix where Jonathan Groff spent several seasons going into various different prisons and talking to serial killers. And so there are definite elements of the Cameron Britton season one arc as Ed Kemper. And it's sort of funny because Cameron Britton and Paul Walter Hauser both played, <laughs> both played Richard Jewell in competing projects a couple of years ago. So, et cetera, et cetera. Paul Walter Hauser is fantastic here. It is such a good, terrifying sad, pathetic performance. And it gets better and better as it goes. It gets darker. It gets more tortured. It becomes more cat and mouse mind gamey as it goes along. And Taron Edgerton is very solid as James Keene. He's, I, I, you know, he's a very good physical actor and he, he kind of conveys this guy's cocky attitude, but also finds the insecurity he feels as he goes forward and as he gets closer and closer to this man who he compares to the devil, etc. Uh, the series has Ray Liotta in one of his last roles as Big Jim. That would be James Keene's father. And it, he's heartbreaking. And he's heartbreaking both because you know about Ray Liotta's passing, but also because he's the character here who 
has vulnerability and who has rawness and his sadness at the situation that he finds himself in being unable to help his son is is heartbreaking. There are definite structural problems to the show and the decision to make the subplot involving Greg Kinnear's character nearly of equal time to the the main subplot was was just a bad idea and i don't know why it was necessary but i guess if you're expanding a story to six hours that probably could have been a 100 minute movie in any other generation that's just what happens but really you watch it for the performances and hauser leota and edgerton plus uh sepida mayafi who plays the totally thankless role as the FBI handler who who gets James Keene into his position, she's really good also, or she's much better than she needs to be given how underrated her or underwritten rather her part is. So it's it's a little bit too bad that they couldn't give that character enough to feel actually genuinely real, but she's good as well. So let's see. By the time this premieres, uh the embargo will have lifted for Boo Bitch. Uh, you mentioned Lauren Ingrich uh, from On My Block. She co-created this with Aaron Ehrlich. They worked together also on Awkward. Very, very good show from a couple years ago. And and, and this one is a, is a tough one to describe. And it's, it's a tough one to describe in terms of its um, construction. Because there was originally a script that was purchased by Netflix. And then the two creators reconceived the script. And... It's a little odd, and I'm curious what the original thing looked like and what the new show looked like. And it's it's hard to explain because basically Lana Condor plays Erica and Zoe Coletti plays Gia. They're basically the two kids from the two girls from Booksmart. They're approaching the end of their senior year, and they realize that all they've done in high school is take classes and prepare for their futures. But they've had no fun in the present. They go to a party, they have fun, and Lana Condor's character gets hit by a truck and dies. A or, moose, I thought. No, she ends up under a moose. Under a moose. She ends up under a moose. Uh, and basically the question becomes, did she die? How did she die? And what is the unfinished business that allows people to actually see her and approach her as if she's still alive? It's, it's a sort of confusing and more confusing than it needs to be and it isn't always fulfilled <laughs> in terms of the why are we being confusing about this and is it worth it but i found there to be some clever writing uh some fun with jargon i think that lana carndor is likable i think zoe coletti is very likable uh i think aparna brielle who plays who was on um AP bio and she was very funny on AP bio and she's fairly funny here. I I'm not sure what it's all adding up to and I haven't finished it and I'm not really sure if I'm going to finish it because it's billed as a limited series for absolutely no reason. I don't, I don't know why maybe we'll get to the end and the earth will end in the finale and there'll be no reason for a second season. Uh, but it, it's okay. And I, and it's, it's another of the recent run of, somewhat likable, not necessarily revolutionary coming of age stories with women of color as the protagonist. And I, I, I like that so much as a trend. And I like it so much that that none of these shows, whether it's Gordita Chronicles or The Summer I Turned Pretty 
uh, et cetera. None of them feel, ex- or Miss Marvel, none of them feel the same. They all feel as if they are different and unique voices. Maybe this one a little bit less, but some. So yeah, if you're if you're a fan of the genre, I think there are good things here, but otherwise maybe the thing that you really want to be looking forward to next week is uh, the new season of What We Do in the Shadows, which I haven't gotten to yet, but I'm looking forward to getting to. There's just been too much TV to get to it. So as the quick recap, Moonhaven on AMC Plus, it's solid. Don't necessarily expect it to be uh, Lodge 49 on the moon, though, but maybe it's got some of that in it. Maggie is cute and likable on Hulu. Not great, but appealing. Background TV. Blackbird, not really cute and likable. It's much more dark and brooding, but uh, it's got some great performances at the center. Boo Bitch, it's okay. And yeah, what we do in the shadows, I'm just assuming it's good. And the uh, the first episode back of Better Call Saul is a super episode. You should definitely watch it and watch it live because some people might want to spoil some things, maybe. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews to keep up with all things television from THR. And for more of Leslie's commentary on television, I believe you're doing a doing a little uh, online event, eh, Leslie? Yes, I'll be hosting a Twitter Spaces convo with the cast of Queer as Folk on Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific on THR's Twitter handle, which is at THR. Makes sense. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. You don't believe me, but it helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We're happy to hear what works, what didn't work, etc. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, and one never knows, though next week is probably a busy week with Emmy nominations and whatnot, but, you know, we, we could always use some questions. So you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.